Welcome to podcast number 38. In 38, we're talking to Craig McClure again. And with Craig, we're going to talk about a couple of his favorite items. We're going to be talking about redundancy, specifically, why do we use it? What are our responsibilities in rescue to make something redundant? Can we justify not making something redundant? And how do we decide when not to use it? So like what parameters are out there to decide, hey, we're not going to be redundant in this system. While we're at it, we're also going to query Craig a little bit on ITRA, the International Technical Rescue Association, and have a little chat with him about internet trolling, one of his favorite topics. So without any further ado. All right, for podcast 38, we are happy to have Craig McClure from the Cracker Jack group back with us, fresh from his move to Colorado. And we're going to talk today about a couple of items that are near and dear to Craig's heart. Number one being redundancy, and number two being a little treat at the end of the podcast. So, Craig, redundancy. Well, first of all, how you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, it actually just started to snow again. So, uh, hoping that my new tractor blade actually clears the driveway without ripping all the gravel out. But we're going to get there. And. Uh, <laughs> This morning had someone come over, a log home builder, to give me a quote on starting on our training tower. Sweet. And when it's done in the spring, I'll make my way down there and do some rappelling off of it. Excellent. Yeah, we'll have all sorts of fun. We will have a we will have a break-in party weekend for it. Oh, I'm into that. Maybe make it the 4th of July and add some other festivities for it. Little pig roast, little beer. Yep. There you go. So, redundancy, and I guess before we get into the questions around redundancy, as redundant as this question is going to sound, you see what I did there, well, how do you define redundancy? Ooh, so I think, I think of it as having more than one load path between the anchor and who's ever at the end of the rope. Okay, I like that, more than one load path between the anchor and whomever is at the end of the rope. I'll use that. So I guess the, the big question coming is, so why do we use redundancy? So this, I came up, I, I wanted to push this topic because I got an email from a former student who was in another class after a class I'd taught, and they were doing a bunch of single rope work. And he emailed me and said, are you just being too safe? Or is this other technique unsafe? Was really kind of his question. And you gotta love those questions, don't you? <laughs> yeah, and what I tried to what I tried to rephrase it as was, are you willing to not have the redundancy? And I force it into systems and classes for a couple reasons. The first is and you know as a trainer, Mark, if we ever hurt someone in class or we have a training accident where someone goes to the deck, we're done. Like our careers are over, our businesses are done. It's our livelihood. Um, and it's just not worth it. So selfishly- Not to that's mention somebody's dead. Well, yeah, that too. Like, so as I said, selfishly, that's one reason. And it's interesting you bring that up just to interject because there's an individual in Ontario that's been- the under the investigation, I believe twice now for killing someone during training. I can't believe they, if they were found guilty the first time, they managed to get a second time. But 
basically now somebody's out there and killed someone twice during training. Yeah, and, and so that's exact like from a business standpoint, that's exactly it. He didn't actively kill someone, but someone died in their class. But yeah. to everyone else, it's always going to get phrased as he killed someone. So selfishly, I can never have that happen. I don't want to see someone get hurt. Um, we have never had a training accident. We've never had more than skinned knees or, you know, things that happen while crawling or moving on rock or moving through caves. Um, and I never want to see it happen. And I also want to leave class with practitioners that have that same philosophy of safety. And I, I've, I, the question gets asked, our equipment is really good now, right? I mean, you've been in this long enough. You remember when there were actually there was questionable gear on the market and we worried about hardware failing or rope actually failing. Well, I can and, remember building our own gear. Like you make your own anchors and the question was, how strong is it? And the answer was always strong enough. <laughs> yeah, enough. Uh, but that's not really the reality now uh, that it, we're not necessarily worried about something breaking. We're worried about human elements, um, rigging error, operational error, or something completely unexpected. And I've actually had students had completely unexpected. Um, they had their belay station set up on what turned out to be a copperhead nest. So halfway through a vertical wall evolution, copperhead started rolling out of the rock on them. Uh, that caused naturally people let go of rope and run, except for one really brave dude. So their redundancy was was for something that was completely un unpredictable. There's a whole whistle stop and uh, you know <laughs> panic hardware argument with that one as well. But <laughs> yeah, but the, so the question is, you know, a, a lot of times is, well, it's not going to fail. The gear doesn't fail, so why are we worried about it? And that always takes me to the next statement, which is. What are you responsible for when you go to rescue someone? Okay. So there is the next question. What are our responsibilities in rescue then? What do you think? I believe that Jen, when we go to rescue someone, we are taking control of that human being. So they're in a bad spot. Our job as professionals who've represented we can do this job well is to take them from that really bad spot and take them to a better spot. But we don't, they don't really get it. They're not active participants. They don't, they don't understand what we're doing. They don't get a voice. Uh, we've taken all of the control away from them. We're strapping them in frequently as meat in a litter and moving meat. And I think when we take responsibility for another human being like that, we have to go to a higher level of care to make sure that we don't have the potential to hurt them. Okay, uh, so you're talking it's a transportation method to a further level of medical care. They're incapacitated, whether that be medically or because we've now incapacitated them by putting them in a stretcher or something. So therefore, because we're responsible for these human beings, we need to ensure that our systems are going to be redundant and you're saying not so much in the fact of the equipment itself, but in the in the placement, the well, the use, care, and maintenance of that equipment is basically what we're talking about. Not so much how it was made, how it was manufactured, but how we've employed it. 
Correct. And and can can a single human error result in us hurting that person we've taken control over? It would be different. Let's say it would never happen, right? That you, you get stuck and hurt somewhere and another rescuer comes to get you. You're an educated rescuer and you guys could probably have a conversation that says, hey, Mark, we can probably get this done faster or differently if we use a single rope and we do X, we do Y, and we, we eliminate some redundancy. You're an, you, you understand what's happening and you could participate in that conversation and it may have a different outcome. But generally the person we rescue, we can't have that conversation. The assumption is, much like when you put someone in the back of an ambulance, they're gonna end up at the hospital safely, right? We don't, there's no, there, the expectation is that we're gonna get it done and we're not gonna make it worse. So there, here's a question I'm just going to throw at you. And I've, I've heard it before, and I don't do a lot of caves. So, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I've always heard with cavers, they do a lot of SRT, single rope technique. And as soon as they put a patient on the system, they go to usually two lines. Is that kind of standard play still? Uh, that's a pretty good synopsis of it. And, and here's... Okay, hang on. Just let me finish this one before you get too far down there. So as a rescuer, I mean, I've spent my, my entire adult life in the fire service. Sorry, that's, uh, I'd love to turn this off, but I can't seem to get it off. Um, a priority I've always been told is us, then them. Life yep. safety is the number one priority, and the first life safety is ours. Now, I've got some arguments about that, but that's on a personal level. But what well, is generally taught out there in the in the systems that exist is life safety is number one. The number one in life safety is us and the number two is them. And if that's the predominant preaching, then shouldn't that statement I just made about cave rescue be reversed? Shouldn't it be, hey, we should be on double rope with us and drop to single rope if we have someone else on the system? Like, wouldn't that answer the us then them question no because i think i think you're the question doesn't apply to the situation with cavers a lot of times cavers or or say canyoneers go to single rope because two ropes is less safe than one in some situations so long pits where you can twist um turning two ropes in a waterfall into a 30 foot long french prusik and locking you up until you drown um, a second rope in a, in a small environment moving on rock, creating more rock fall. There are times where that second rope is less safe, and that's why cavers are using one. They're not using one because they don't care to use two. They're using one because in that situation, one is better than two. Okay. So, so let, me, let me back it up for you a bit more. What do you think about that priority in regards to life safety? Do you think that the rescuer life is worth more than the patient's? No. And it, I, I've always, I'd love to put this conversation in some advanced classes and, and really listen to the answers. We know it isn't generally uh, because I know if it were a friend of mine and I were the rescuer, I would take greater risk than for a stranger. There, there's a human element involved here. 
And when you show up as a rescuer, as a trained rescuer, I think you have to assume some risk in the situation. And But what I think when you say, you know, we need redundancy because our life safety comes first, I think there's another equally valid argument that in the process of the rescue, if something goes wrong and we hurt a rescuer, we're now going to delay treatment to the person we went to rescue. So it's in the best interest of us to not put ourselves in a situation where we could hurt a rescuer because it would change the priorities and take the focus off the person we're there to help. Okay. And I mean, this is like you say, this is a good advanced class topic to bounce around there. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that say, hey, you get paid good money for what you do. We're paying you to take risks. And we're resentful for you to think that you are more important than us. Yeah, this is, I mean, I'm sure you, the, this is a great smoke eater argument, right? Yeah. You know, I, I know a lot of firefighters that kind of resent that statement that, or the practice that says they can't do their job because there's too much risk in a certain situation. That's not what they signed up for. They, they will take greater risk because that's the responsibility and the life they've chosen. And I think sometimes we, we retard that drive in people by being too safe and saying we won't do it because there's risk. And there's a lot of articles out there now. Just Google, are we too risk adverse in the fire service or any emergency service for that level? Um, and you'll see a lot of articles for and against that. But that was kind of a different tangent. So back on to the, what are the respons our responsibilities in rescue? We figure we covered that off. Yeah, it, it's our responsibility is is primarily the person we're there to help, and if our if our system puts that can put that person at greater risk, or put us in a situation where we delay care, we're not doing the right thing. Okay, so your next question is: Can we or you justify not making your system redundant? So I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story that brought up this question. Um, years ago, I was doing snowmobile patrol in the backcountry for a sheriff's office. Um, and one of the guys I was with said, you think you can high mark that hill? Can you climb that? And I was on a brand new, like $13,000, 800 long track snowmobile. Climbing this thing was not going to be a problem. But I looked at it and said, I can but I certainly can't justify the lieutenant when I screw up and tumble his brand new sled down the hill and total it. The, there was, I, I couldn't justify the outcome, the negative outcome. And okay. to the same reason, I can look at rescue the same way. And this was the quest, really the question from this former student. I said, yeah, you can do this on single rope and you can probably do it faster but if something goes wrong and you have rock fall, you cut a rope or someone mishandles a line and, and you end up dropping someone even eight, you know, six feet to a ledge and busting up their ankle and don't even kill them. Can you go back and justify your decision to not be redundant when you could have and saved this incident from happening? I find very few situations where I can justify not being redundant. You know, we do a lot of work in Europe and under the, grimp system in europe the french grimp system so french belgium france um 
there is a lot of single rope technique for the rescuer to access the patient. As soon as a patient comes online, much like caving, and if you go deep enough back into the histories of Grimp, Grimp comes from French caving, which is not shocking when you think about it. So to access the patient, they do a lot of single rope. Once they get to the patient, it goes to double rope. And when they access the patient on single rope, there is a risk matrix. It's a form they have that has to be completed by the team leader. And the rope, like there's certain parameters. The rope can't go over an edge. So a lot of rebelays get built into them. Um, they call them something different, but most of our uh, listeners, viewers, <laughs> listeners would understand the system as like a small hanging rebelay almost or a not bypass um, in order to ensure that they do not have static rope over top of hard edges. And so they go to great lengths to ensure that the system, and I'm going to air quote this for all those people that can't see me out there, is safe for SRT. But I'm, I'm betting, and I mean, I know some of the answer to this. When this started, a lot of this hazard risk assessment matrix wasn't likely done. There would have been something done, more probably informal. But as we get into these more and more formal steps, are we getting to a point where just rig a second line, it's going to take you less time? Yeah. So this is where I become a hypocrite. And so two things. One, Another reason I'm really excited for us to go to Europe and work with some of these guys, because we're going to see different approaches and different different decision-making processes. But we do it in the mountain rescue world all the time. Access a patient on a single line. And I, I, I now, thinking back, sometimes I have trouble justifying that decision, um, especially now that gear has gotten smaller, lighter, and better to, to run a self-managed backup. Um, like, you know, what's, what's the weight of a, what's the weight and size of a little camp goblin to carry that and carry that with you? It's not much. Um, so you could, you can run, you can now create redundancy without taking up extra manpower. Uh, but when we do it in the back countries, usually you have someone, it's an experienced person. You generally have a higher level of skill. This is the justification that may be wrong, right? This is how we've justified it. Higher level of skill, generally higher level of training. Your anchor gets inspected by someone else. Your edge gets checked and padded well. And now it's a non-moving rope. You're repelling. You're not moving rope over edges. So you can, you can better predict and protect what's going to happen. Once you get to the patient, you now have quick access. You can make good assessments. You can pass good information. Back up the rope. To, to help in, in setting up the, the rest of the rescue, affecting that rescue. So the, I think you can, you can justify to yourself that single rope is okay there. But I like your question that should follow up. How much extra effort would it be to throw in a second rope? Do you have a second rope? Do you have a device you can manage on that rope? Is it going to be more safe and more effective for the rescue to add that second rope? couple of questions or first of all a point um it'd be interesting to have this conversation in a little bit there's a bunch of us going in april we're going to go do we're going to grimp school in belgium uh emp do which is um a second level the team lead level you just wanted to say do that's all that yeah so it'd be interesting because there'd be a lot of chats around that in uh in the system sorry team member level not team lead level 
But there'll be a lot of conversations around that. Number two, then, when we talk about this, you talk about rappelling, you talk about padding out the edge. As systems get smaller and lighter, as you mentioned, as, as rope diameter goes down, is there now more of an argument to make it redundant? When I started in the fire service and we're running 12 and a half, I got a lot of meat on rope on edge. I go and do my trace course. And now I'm running six mil. I've got two ropes that don't even meet the 12.7 that I started hanging off of when I started this thing, 25, 30, whatever I got into the fire service many years ago. So with the smaller diameter systems, do you feel that redundancy then becomes more important? Or is it the same level of importance that it is now? I think a few years ago, the answer to that would have been yes. Um, because skinnier ropes... Um, their downfall was that they were just just by factor of of cross section were more susceptible to edge trauma and you had less tolerance for us for you know a little nick in a 12 mil rope means nothing a little nick in a six mil rope may be may be deadly rope and and rope sheath construction and material has come so far that i don't i'm not necessarily sure with good rope selection it's a valid argument to say is more likely to cut Okay, so basically, you're going to pad an edge for a six mil, no different than you're going to pad an edge for a 12 and a half, and the rope strengths are such that it's really irrelevant to you? Rope, sorry, rope construction, not so much strength. Yeah, I think, I think it's less of a factor. But then, okay. then we come back to your second question before, which is, what's your cost of adding a second rope? Well, if especially it's, if, if you're running around with six mil. Yeah, so even if you... If you carry 300 feet of six mil for a 75 foot access problem, your anchor isn't where it's going to fail, right? You could probably just tie the tie your in the middle of your rope to that anchor, throw both ropes over the edge after putting knots in the end, um, pad them well, and do what Kevin calls, you know, run a Siamese device, right? You you put both ropes through the same device because you're not worried about device failure. You're, you're worried about a rope breaking on a bad edge. And you can create your redundancy to at least account for what is your most likely failure point, which is cutting your rope. There you go. What's um, your cost? Sorry, go ahead. What's, what's your cost to that? Carrying a little bit of extra rope. Yeah, that's true. There really isn't no cost at that point. Uh, you mentioned knots in the end of your rope. I want to just reiterate that with our listeners. When we repost a lot of these accidents and mishaps on our social media sites, people repelling and, and professionals, like like we're not just talking about something they just learned to climb last week. We're talking about trained professionals repelling off the end of lines is incredible the amount that yes. you see of this. Check that before you do it. And I know over in the system in Belgium, that was one of the only incidents they have, which is a lot of their teams do not use bags. Their ropes are coiled and in a vehicle and they have to take them out and bag them before they go to their incident, which means they guarantee basically that there's knots in the end of that rope. And that is only one rope in the bag. I think that was the accident they had. They anchored the end of a rope, two same colored ropes in a bag, two different ends, one to the anchor, one to the patient. You want to guess what happened? Um, yeah. 
But yeah, that way they guarantee one rope in a bag, both ends are knotted, and the rope's been inspected. So, and that goes back to that risk matrix they have because when they send in a rescuer, they're sending them in primarily on single line. And, and, and just a little detail on knotting the rope. For rescue, I like knotting the rope four or six feet from the end. So if something happens and, I, and I'm running out of rope, when, I, yes. when that knot hits my hand, I at least have six more feet of rope to try to unmess the problem and get out of it rather than being hanging, you know, pinching well, the, the, end of the rope hanging in the air. Well, the biggest thing I've always told people with knots in the end of the rope is leave enough rope so that you can mate that knot into the next rope you're going to get. Yes. That's your really your only options at that point. If I'm lowering you and I hit the knot and I wasn't paying attention, that's what I'm tying into at this point. There better be enough there. Oh, yeah. There's the next podcast. We can debate all the different ways to join rope together. That'll be a really fun one. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, back to this question in regards to can you justify not doing it? Tactical environment. You're a former police officer. We train tactical rope to military and police users. Can you justify not doing it? Tactical rope, single rope so, technique is almost predominant. I was never a tactical rope operator. So I want to be careful speaking to that environment. Yes, you know, I, I carried a gun on the street, but I never worked a tactical team. I never worked on rope in the law enforcement setting. Um, okay. So I want to be careful how much I speak into that because I'd just be making it up as I went. Give it a thought. Why not? Everybody's allowed to have an opinion on the internet. Yeah. Um, it's extra stuff to throw over the edge. Uh, I know one of the concerns in the tactical environment is is not providing tools or options for the person that you're dealing with to interfere with your system. So adding extra rope below you, adding extra moving parts can be dangerous. Hence uh, the lag bag. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, really, got the same thing with, with pickoffs, right? Even a even a panic climber, you don't want to give him the end of your rope and let them hang on to it. That's that's Not unless a, you don't want to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's a that's an unfriendly fireman's belay at that point. Um, and I, I think you you have to when you're when you're talking about those environments, especially military tactical environments, you there there's a different assumption of risk involved, um, and and a different level of training and a different level of understanding. No, I think you're absolutely correct on that. Um, last one, SRT, DDRT, or DRT, depending on where you're looking at it. Arborist. There's a lot of single rope techniques still in ARB. I know some of the countries in Europe are starting to say, hey, we're going to ban single rope ARB technique. and We're going into a doubled rope systems. So there's another place where, you know, can you justify not doing it? I mean, we could also go back to the climbing world. We're talking mountain rescue. Climbing yeah. world, you're generally on one rope as well. So this still exists. Yes, it does. Um, it's interesting. I don't know what's the, there's a big, there's a, an arborist climbing competition happening in Florida soon. Okay. And I just saw posting for it. And Rich Hattier, who's doing a full course on two rope arbor, arb work. Yep. So that influence is creeping into the industry. Let's let's get two ropes in play. Um, yeah, Rich came up here a couple of years ago, and we he taught us both systems, and we looked at rescuing from them, and that was our biggest focus was rescuing an arborist from that system. 
And I'll tell you straight up, most fire departments are going to show up unless they have someone that's working ARB on the side and look at the systems that are rigged and go, yeah, I guess we're using our own lines because I got no idea what's going on here. Yep. Uh, but when you talk about ARB and SRT work, um, you, you got it before you, you poo poo that you got to pick up and handle one of those ARB ropes. Um, yeah. You can you can anchor a battleship with that stuff. And we did a podcast on ARB. Uh, that's one of our original ones, probably into the teens, maybe in the if you look through our stuff. There's is an ARB podcast out there and I'd love to get rich on here as well and have a chat about it. So back to this one with redundancy, how would you decide when not to use it then? So the, the statement I've come to is um, redundant unless it's less safe to do so. It's a really simple statement. It is redundant is unless it's less safe to do so. Yep. Okay. Um, and, and I know, again, being a hypocrite, I, I sometimes fall outside of that a little bit for, let's say, expedience of access of a, of a critical patient. Um, but I think there are very few environments in rescue because honestly, and I once had a medical director tell me this, we rarely, rarely deal with people who are on the knife edge of survival. If they're going to live, they're going to live. If they're going to die, they, they probably already died. Um, it's pretty uncommon that our timelines are so narrow for survival that adding a, adding a second rope and putting in that redundancy is going to be the deciding factor. So, it's which a is bit interesting because when you think of the tactical environment, you may get more to that knife edge than you will in your general rescue environment. Correct. Speed may matter there. Rarely in our world does ultimate speed matter. So why not be redundant unless you're in one of the situations? Uh, there was a great video that went around um, a couple of years ago about a waterfall rescue in Washington where they actually had a failure. Um, what was the failure? Like dinner uh, plate or anchor blow or what? They, they had, they had a, a rope cut on a sharp edge uh, okay. inside, inside the waterfall. And I don't remember the exact outcome of it. I remember the drama of the video and all that moving water. But that would be like that or canyoneering or some of these big caves. That's where you get in situations where a second rope may become less safe. And, and that gives me the out when I say be redundant unless it's less safe to do so. Okay. People can come up with other examples. But well, back to the justification. Why not if you can? Yeah. Well, I'm going to bring up kind of an example here. It's something we spoke about just before we got on the line is redundancy in guys. When you're making AHDs, you're talking bipods or tying back even a tripod or a monopod. I generally don't do redundant guy lines. I, I've done training with a lot of people and I've been trained by a lot of people and I don't recall anybody ever doing redundancy in guy lines and when we spoke about it before and i'll give you a second you know here like we have a bipod on the side of our heavy rescue a paratech system mounts into uh receivers on the bottom and it's got a four to one mechanical advantage on a cmc csr pulley that can raise and lower it up and down as required we take a safety line and tie it back and it's not that we think the four to one is going to break or the CSR pulley is going to break. 
we're more concerned about the non-technical rescue trained fireman that sees the eight mil red rope hanging down from the release mechanism on the side of the truck and deciding maybe it needs to be cleaned up or pulled on or for whatever other reason operated, then allowing our entire bipod to basically ass over tea kettle and have the struts come out of the sleeves, causing a pretty much catastrophic failure of the system. So we back it up with a safety line. So, so that's really, you're, the only you're, place I've ever done it. You're accounting for board white hat syndrome. Yeah, basically exactly what we're accounting for. And it's not that we don't, as we've mentioned before, like today in this podcast, we trust the, the system implicitly. I mean, we're talking paratech shoring. We're talking four to one on a, we're using a PMI um, Unicor 37.4 kilonewton rope through a CMC CSR. I mean, we're talking pretty chunky equipment. We don't expect any of that to fail. We're running Rock Exoticus steel carabiners that are the ANSI NFPAs. I think those are 47 or 50 KN. What we're worried about is someone coming and pulling that 8 mil and taking the entire house of cards down with it. Everything will still be in one piece. It just won't be where it needs to be. So we back it up. And it brings up this thing about redundancy and guy lines. And I've never backed up a guy line. I mean, we've gone down to 5 mil power cord on them, which... You know, when we talk about even now, the strength of a five mil power cord is pretty decent, but we're certainly not into what the fire service would be considered a two person load. So have you done anything with redundancy in guys or what are your thought on it? Uh, I, I haven't and I'd never really considered it till that till that discussion. Um, but, but I think it, I think it's on the same continuum and this is going to sound wacky, but it's on the same continuum. Of that very almost meme-ish, humorous, uh, but misapplied statement from Irata about two rig plates. <laughs> that came up on a post yesterday we had. Somebody looked at our rigging and said, hey, where's your second rig plate? That might have been me. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I occasionally troll you just for fun. Yes, uh, well. But it seems to be, it seems to go in circles. Yeah. So, I mean, the statement about two rig plates was... That's actually, that comes back to, it's actually less safe to do so, right? Adding a second rig plate creates more problems than it solves. And do rig, plate, do rig plates fail? And, and, and we know they don't. So now at the, on that same continuum is this, is this high directional issue in guidelines. Where's the failure? What's the consequence? And does it fail? So... I think there's there's an argument that said, you know, you may need redundant anchors in your guy lines uh, if you're anchoring a suspect, um, back that up. But the statement that, that is now, I think, I think is being used, I'm, I may be wrong, but it's being used in Sprat, and I know we put it in some of the ITRA literature, which is um, a non-moving manufactured part may not need to be redundant. That covers the rig plate issue. And if you set up a monopod and you guy it and you check it, is it now at this point kind of a non-moving part? Where 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 is your risk and, and what do you get out of extra what do you get out of redundancy? And the other part of the argument for me is if you spend a lot of time working with high directionals, your biggest challenge is finding enough anchoring. 
Absolutely. And, and I, I don't think it's always practical to say we we need it redundant because you frequently can't get redundant anchoring. When you're, say, you're setting up a sideways A-frame, you're looking for anchors near an edge, which are kind of, it's sometimes in some environments, um, unicorn hunting. And, and finding two unicorns is a challenge. Try finding four. So I, I, I guess I, I appreciate the effort and the thought in saying it should be redundant. I'm not sure there's, if we actually had a risk matrix for it, it, it's high enough on the risk matrix to say we need to put in the extra effort and the extra resources to make it happen. And is it in that chain of life safety? If your high directional stumbles or falls, do you have other redundancy in place to keep it from becoming catastrophic? And then we go back to the rigging the rope over the edge or through your artificial high directional. Yeah. That's another conversation for a different day. Yes. Yeah, I asked that question to someone once, and they gave me a decision matrix. And I said, hey, this is a pretty smart dude. Um, it wasn't you. Don't worry. And I said, <laughs> no, it's not me. I'm lucky to eat and walk at the same time. I said, do you put both your lines high? Do you one, high, one, high, one line high, one line low through? through? And it was specific to go tripod. And he said, no, I don't. I make the tripod bomber, and then I don't worry about it, and I keep both lines high. And I said, what do you do if the tripod's not bomber? He says, I go back and I make it bomber. So I, I, there, there are a lot of decisions to be made here. I, I like that approach. But this may turn into bomber is redundant, redundant guidelines. That, I guess, depends on your your viewpoint of that, the lens you're looking at this through. Yep. And what's what's the consequence? Well, that's the big thing, right? And even with us, with the rescue truck, if the consequence was that the bipod hit the ground and the guy, you know, took a, a four foot, you know, downward motion, that's one thing. The problem is, is because of the way the paratech is, it can come apart. And now all of a sudden, you know, is the guy in the hole dodging pieces? Um, now you're shooting be, a four foot long metal missile down a small hole. Yeah, and it shouldn't, but you never know at that point. Um, any other thoughts on redundancy before we get into the other couple? I said one more, but I've got one other question for you as well. But let's finish off. Anything else on redundancy? No, I just I just want to say I don't think I don't think we have the answers here. I think it's I think it's a framework for for discussion about how we make this decision. Because um, we know, just like safety factor, if you say you're a ten to one safety factor, you're not always ten to one everywhere. So don't fool yourself into thinking you are. And when we talk about being redundant, we're not always redundant everywhere. So we should at least have a language for and a decision making process for why we aren't in the same way of a decision-making process for when it's okay to change our safety factor. There's no real answer. The redundancy is on the extra unicorn anchor on the way out the door. Yeah. Yep. Okay. You mentioned it really quick and I just, if you could do 60 seconds, ITRA, I know you're an assessor. I'm a member as an instructor. Um, what do you think the biggest pros for ITRA are out there right now? I think the biggest pro is in the potential to have a system for rope education and rescue education 
that becomes skill verification based and not attendance based. For me, that's the big one, right? When we, when we talk about industrial access, guys, um, you don't you don't go to a Sprat class and get a certificate at the end because you show. You get a certificate when you put in the work and you can show you you're proficient in the skills. And we've been missing that in the in the rescue world for a long time. So that's why I'm putting energy into it. That's why I bought in is the potential to change how we look at competence and rope rescue. That's it. Cool. Thank you. My last one. Internet trolling. And I'm just going to bring up a conversation that occurred. We had someone minor, post. Minor peoples. Because <laughs> no, mine is. In general. Okay. Um, what, I'm just wondering your, your train of thought around it. We had someone post and said, we shouldn't post a particular skill set online, a picture of it, because it was highly complex. And unless you knew what you were doing, you would get hurt. If and you, that's not so much as internet trolling, but it does bring up this whole social media thought process. I guess there is a generation of people that are out there learning via the internet and taking what they see offline as gospel. And some of our listeners may scoff at that and some may not, but I think everybody to some degree has gone online to verify a thought or to look at another way of doing things and some of this does create some trolling of these sites. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, a couple things. I mean, my, my, my first reaction is if you're, if you're trying to educate yourself by Instagram, um, that's great if you're like I was last week and trying to figure out how to replace the seals in my espresso maker. Like learning by YouTube and Instagram on that, I think is okay. Cause the worst that was going to happen was I was going to have crappy coffee. Um, but <coughs> learning rigging and life safety work, um, by social media, um, it's a, it's a, it's a tactile learned practice skill. And for someone to tell you, you can't post that because if I replicated, I could hurt myself. That's not on you. That's on that's on them because you didn't post it and say, hey, everyone go do this. This is this is the one. This is the only way and 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 have at. Um, and, and we have to recognize it's out there. We we all use it. Every almost every trainer out there um, and, and educator is using social media because it's our marketing outreach. It's what it's it drives a lot of our business. And if we don't post good provocative content, we don't keep in front of people. Um, so posting that stuff is is a necessity almost of, of, of being a thought leader in the industry and trying to keep your business going. But I don't think you have to be responsible for someone misapplying that information or or you or taking it as an absolute. I don't I don't believe everything you post. Right. I mean, it's people should should fact check people should seek other sources they should seek live education um their education needs to go beyond what they see in one picture what are your thoughts around the these let's call them internet judges that 
seem to have a fairly limited view of how things should be done. And if they're not done that way, enjoy explaining to other people uh, quite vocally how it, why it shouldn't be that way. They're obnoxious and they're annoying. And I just like to think of them as friendless people living in their mother's basement with nothing better to do. Um, wow. Okay. That, where do the point on that one? I mean, do we, I know we have issues with it. Do you find you have issues with it, with these folks? And how do you deal with it? I mean, there's business owners out there that are listening to our podcast that have the same thing where you get some of this feedback and what do you do with it? So I think it depends. I, I've, I have had people respond to stuff that have pointed out an error and been correct and educated me. Um, I've also um, sometimes replied to people offline of the, of the main conversation and said, hey, this is what you said, and, 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 and put a little education behind what I think they're missing. It, I think it depends on the person and their approach. If they're just out there to flame you, um, I've, de I decided a while ago that I just ignore it. Um, and, and it's, it's just a fact of life of, of the internet world. And I post content to further education and I post a lot of content from, um, stuff that students do. And it's not always perfect. Education isn't about perfection. Some of the best education you get is when you make a mistake. And I just got kind of tired of trying to sanitize everything to make every every person happy and agree with everyone. Um, and sometimes maybe being a little controversial is okay. I want to reiterate that, just say it in a different way. And for people that are listening is, you're a training organization, we're a training organization. We have people that take photos of the training occurring. There's a lot of times people don't go over the edge with the system that you've seen because it's been corrected before it got to that point. However, like you say, to sanitize and clean every photo, you run a course and you get a thousand photos back from the students. It becomes a, it becomes a challenge. And sometimes things are rigged, as we will call it, deliberately incorrectly for a reason. Um, and sometimes those pictures do end up in there. And I guess, like you say, it's up to each individual to be to fact check their own stuff. Or as, as an instructor, you look at something and say, I know that's not correct, but it's not critical and no one's going to get hurt if I let this continue. And this is a this is a teaching moment for later. And if I stop things now, I'm interfering with a better learning objective that's happening. So you let it go. Right. A misaligned carabiner or a knot that's not perfect. Um, there are all sorts of things that happen that aren't that aren't what you want optimally, and you wouldn't put in a catalog shoot, but it inhibits the education to stop and fix every little detail. So you don't no, do it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anything else, or uh, we good there? I think we're good. Yeah, we'll fair see. We'll see what people say about this. Well, thank you very much for coming on, and. Uh, have yourself a good rest of the day. I will. Thank you very much. And uh, stay warm up there. Sounds good.